obviously our country was hit by a lot of hurricanes and destruction and ruin. And so we have some people in our church that have really felt compelled by God to uh, create a context whereby uh, money can be raised to go to them. So uh, in partnership with our church and with people that are part of this church uh, and some of the musicians, there is uh, on our website, you can go there right now, just calvaryso.com. There's information on our front page that kind of lays out for you guys in detail. I know none of you can see this because it's so small um, right now, but we do have posters and we have information on our website. You can check it out Um, to be able to go to this. It will be at Slow Brew the Rock. There'll be live music. Uh, There's an artist, a well-known artist that's going to be at it as well. Um, In fact, I think here's here's the thing. You can go to calvaryslow.com forward slash relief. That's it. Um, I-V for E except after C if you're like relief. E-I-I-E, I-V for E except after C. Uh, That's me talking to myself. Um, I forget. Anyways, uh, calvarysell.com forward slash relief. All the information is right there. You can buy tickets right there. Again, the money will go to Samaritan's Purse as well as to Slow Brew to, uh, for, the, for the event part that they're going to be producing for this. So check it out. We're expecting God to do big things through this. It's our way uh, as a church community to get together to send relief and support and monies over to those that have been devastated by such uh, types of uh, cataclysmic events as the past recent couple weeks. So with that, you guys should already be open to the book of Matthew. Maybe I didn't say that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 is uh, what I want to read today. If you guys don't have Bibles, we have uh, ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. And uh, what we're going to be doing today is starting a, a new uh, brief series for three weeks. Uh, we have been uh, on Sunday mornings in a series going through the book of Acts. We've been in this for a very long time. Uh, we promise you we will end up fish, finishing up this book by the end of the year. And then uh, that will be praying about what God has for us next. But um, every year, for the past several years, what we've done around this time of year, we pause and we recalibrate our understanding and our focus upon the gospel, upon who God is, upon what God is up to in this world. And really for the main purpose of asking the bigger question is how do we participate? What does it look like for us to be engaged, to be part of what God is doing in this world, in this community, in this local church expression or community of God's purposes. So what we hope to do today to, uh, to paint a picture, a compelling picture of what God is up to so that you can see creative ways of being engaged to participate with what God is up to. Because the flip side is to approach what God is up to from a, con- from a context of being indifferent, meaning you just don't really care, meh is how you view the world, Worse, you can have a mentality of being angry or frustrated or standing in obstinance to what God is up to. Um, Hopefully, none of you guys intend that. But the point of the matter is, is that we want to be a community of people that recognize the vast, beautiful, amazing work of what God is up to in this world uh, and begin to engage with that, to participate, to say yes, Lord, to everything that you are a part of doing in this world. So that's my hope this morning, uh, actually for today and as well for the next two other weeks beyond today. Uh, I'm going to explain a little bit about what we'll be looking at. It will all be based out of this particular passage where Jesus actually says, I will build my church. We'll be unpacking that and the ideas that are part of this. Um, So hopefully that will all make sense. So today's message is actually called Build My Church. And then the larger concept which we'll be looking at is the subject of gathering together. What does it mean to be a gathered together community of people? Again, hopefully all that will be answered for you guys as we look at this. So I want to read the passage, Matthew chapter 16, 
Uh, I'll pick it up around verse 13. We'll go down about verse 18. Um, then I'll pray, and then we'll begin to get to work looking at some of this information. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it begins by saying this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of John, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. And this is God's word. Let me pray. We'll get to work. God, thank you for what you have to speak to us, what you have spoken. And God, we pray right now that you would open our hearts, that we would come like ready, prepared, receptacles, uh, quick and willing to let go of past ideas and false uh, concepts that we've carried about you and baggage that we've had held against you. God, we pray that you would reprogram and remind us, Lord, who you are, that your word would transform us. God, I pray that you would help me to be able to articulate and communicate the things rightly that are in line with your spirit, and the things that have nothing to do with your heart, that are just spoken uh, in the moment that are that are less inspired by you and just simply coming out of my mouth. Jesus, I pray that you would wash, clean those things and help me to be able to articulate clearly what you have to speak to our community today. Uh, And for all of us, God, I pray that we would be quick to respond to who you are and to what you're doing in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said. All right, so I want to look at basically two things and what I will do is I'll finish up with some closing or concluding thoughts. So first of all, I want to really kind of ask the question, this big subject matter of God building his church, and I want to ask the question, what is God's part? Like, what is God doing? The second question, again, we'll try to understand from the text, um, what's our part? Like, what, what type of reaction or reciprocation does God expect or God want or God invite? Maybe a better way to think about it. Does God invite us to be a part of what he's doing in this world? So with that, let's jump in and take a look at the big question, first of all, which is God's part. What is God doing? What's he up to? That's the big question. So I want to look at basically three concepts or three ideas or phrases, uh, literally from the mouth of Jesus himself. And we'll look at them one by one because I think they're all very significant. So we'll look at the word I, um, ask the question, who is actually saying this. Number two, the uh, phrase, will build, like what is Jesus doing? And thirdly, uh, what is he up to? The idea of my church. So those three things. Number one, let's look at the question or the idea of I. Who is the I? So let's just pause real quick and ask the big question of the text. Like who is speaking here? And why is it so significant? Why is it so important? Um, Because if it's just somebody that is anybody less than Jesus, I think we'd all agree that his words would not carry the same type of weightiness as Jesus himself. But if this person speaking says I, and then he goes on to say what he's about to do, uh, it changes everything. Because what he's about to say is so important and of such incredible significance that we would do well to just listen and respond to who this person is that's speaking and allow the weightiness of his words to begin to reshape who, uh, what, and what our response is. So first of all, who is the I? 
Um, the idea is, uh, we see there's three of them, actually three phrases, three clues that are given to us in the text, three uh, ways to reveal to us who this is. So number one, Jesus himself tells us, uh, as he asks the question, he says, when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he says, who do people say that I, and this is the phrase, the son of man am? So the first thing we know about Jesus in terms of his identity, the I, is he's the son of man. Again, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in terms of understanding what the phrase Son of Man is. That would be on another time because there's one phrase I really want to spend the majority of our time thinking about, or at least in this moment, thinking about. The second phrase that we see is he also describes uh, that he is the Son of the living God. So again, another, another phrase that if, at least, if anything, it indicates the fact that whoever this Jesus is, he is the Son of the living God. So again, in a context of religious people that are highly aware of Yahweh, anybody that comes in the name of Yahweh, anybody that comes as a prophet of Yahweh should be honored, right? But what if Yahweh's son comes? Should he be honored, received, uh, respected? So when Jesus throws out this phrase that, that I am the son of the living God, do you understand the weightiness of this? That this is, whoever he is up until this point is, is of such tremendous weightiness that we should pause and realize this is not just a prophet, though prophets are important. This is not just a priest, though priests are important. This is not just somebody who loves Yahweh. This is somebody who's actually incredibly loved by Yahweh himself because he actually is kin. He is the son of the living God. But the last phrase I really want to look at, just think about in this context, is the phrase, the Christ. So what does the phrase the Christ mean? Because Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, good job, Peter. Because flesh and blood, meaning you did not gain this by way of natural understanding or reasoning or thinking or going to the library. You gain this information because the Father in heaven, Yahweh himself, has been pleased to reveal this to you to show you the beauty of this. So what does the phrase or the concept Christ actually mean? The Greek word that's used there is the exact same word in Hebrew as Mashiach. So again, that might not be very helpful for some of you. But to think about it this way, that word Christos or Christ, or Mashiach uh, or Messiah, which is where you get that word from, basically at its root means this word anointed. It means the concept, the phrase, it points to, it's indicative of an activity that Jewish people would do. Whereby they would bring somebody in of significant value, like a king or a high priest, or somebody that has incredible value within the context of the culture of society. And what they would do is they would literally dump oil, olive oil, all over their head, and their face, and their beard. So imagine uh, their entire body being drenched in this uh, running, probably warm because it's desert, uh, hot, uh, or warm oil all over their body. That activity would be actually called anointing. Why? Well, it was a way of basically uh, depicting the Holy Spirit covering the activities, the actions of whoever that person is going to be. So if it's a high priest, you want him walking in the ways of the Holy Spirit. I would imagine it takes a long time to get olive oil out of your beard, I would think. Um, I don't have a beard, so I can't be certain, but I would imagine. Um, If you had a king, the king's job was to walk in a way that would walk uh, in connection with the very breath of the living God. 
the idea would be that whoever's going to be king, whoever's going to be high priest, whoever's going to have authority and responsibility within the society at large of Israel would set society in such an order that would actually bring about justice and help and healing and protection for the most vulnerable. That's what kings were supposed to do. So the hope for Jewish people for hundreds of years, based upon the connection with the Old Testament passages, where there were these ideas that were basically saying that the world is a mess. It's broken. It's not safe. Your kids can't go out and play in the streets because it's not safe. You have to lock your doors. I mean, we live in a society that even more so is unsafe. I mean, we do have things unlike other past societies like police forces and armies and things like that for the most part. Other societies in the past did not simply have. But back then, imagine how vulnerable you were. And the hope would be that one day a king, an anointed one, would rise up and he would walk in the ways of Yahweh and he would represent the ways of God and he would fight for the weak. He would stand with the marginalized, he would take care of the most vulnerable in culture and society. He would bring forth, literally, justice. So the hope would be that whoever this is, this king would be that one. So now go back to the story. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you think I am? Peter says, you're that one. You're the one. You're the one that we've always hoped for. You're the one that we believe is the king that's anointed by God, that walks in the ways of the Holy Spirit, that does right, that does and brings justice, that takes care of the poor and the marginalized. We believe that you're that one. So this is, a, this is a profound moment of revelation that's actually happening here. So whoever the I is, we know that this I in the context is the Christ. This is how they believed it. One writer put it this way. I love how he described this. He says that he, that's Jesus, he is the seed of the woman in Genesis. He's the star in the book of Numbers. He's the redeemer in the book of Job, the servant of God in the book of Isaiah, the Lord of righteousness in the book of Jeremiah, the Messiah in the book of Daniel, the desire of nations in Haggai, the king in Zechariah, the messenger in the covenant of Malachi. And it goes on and concludes by saying that every prophecy of the coming king validates Christ's breathtaking claim out of John chapter 4, verse 26. I am he. So who is the I? The I is none other than the king that has come to set this world that is stained and broken by sin and rebellion and destruction and ruin. He's come to set this world right, to take and reorder it as the king, as the king. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's literally saying, you are the king that has come. So what's this king going to do? That's what Jesus goes on to say, to describe. The second thing that we see is that he says, I will build. I will build. So Jesus basically declares, I will do something. I will establish and build forth something. So whatever this king, whatever Jesus is doing, among other things, he's building something. We'll look at what the something is in just a moment. But he's actively building something. So I want you to think about, hold that thought right here and go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. I just want to read uh, the image that Paul the Apostle would later write. He says this, For we are God's fellow workers. Uh, you are God's field and God's building. So he uses two metaphors, kind of brings them together. Two images. One, you are a field. The other is a building, which, by the way, are very different. Field, think of agriculture. Building, think of architecture. And so agricultural and architectural analogy, but both are important to identify whoever and whatever Jesus is up to in this world doing. 
He's building something, something that has to do with a field, organic, something that has to do with a building that is being constructed and put together. He goes on to say in verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God that was given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid by Jesus Christ. Again, that phrase, Christ, Jesus Christ, is another way of saying Jesus, the king. So what's Jesus, the king, doing? He's building a foundation. Because upon that foundation is going to become this structure. What's that structure? That leads us to the last question of the text right here, which is the last phrase. Jesus says, I, the Messiah, will build. He's actively doing something. And he finally says, my church. This is the final phrase. The, he will, I will build my church. So the question that, again, wrestling with the text, what in the world, if you were Peter, James, or John, whatever, in the context of Jesus talking, he says, guys, guess what? I'm going to build my church. How would they envision that? Like, what images came to their mind? Now, if I were to ask you, or, you know, hey, what do you think of when Jesus says, I'm going to build my church? Some of us might think of a state of art, you know, building with a really nice sound system. Uh, if you have, you know, some sort of ancient European roots in you or you've been on tours before, you might think, like I do think, of these vast cathedrals with big steeples and incredible stained glass windows. I had an opportunity to go to Hungary last year, and there's some incredible Catholic churches that are just amazing. The art in there is, like, mind-blowing, beautiful. I love it. Um, and that's what I would think about. But again, Peter, James, and John, not at all what these guys would think about. There's no such thing as a cathedral or a church building or a state-of-the-art you know, sound system or a lighting system or a laser show or multimedia or anything like that. None of those images would have flooded their mind. What would have flooded their mind when they heard Jesus say, hey, guess what? I'm going to build my church. They probably would have thought something along this line. The word church that Jesus used there it's not, a, it's not like an uncommon word. It doesn't get used that much in the New Testament. But the word literally is the Greek word ekklesia. It means called out ones. The word kaleo means to call. is part of that word. And the idea is this is a community of called out people. So a better way to think about it, what these guys probably would have in their mind is something along the lines of an assembly or a gathering or a community of people. They might meet in a building like they would have in the temple. They might meet out in the wilderness like they did with John the Baptist. They might find a place underneath an oak tree. There were oak trees. They might find a spot somewhere and gather. But the image that they would have had in mind is not so much about a building, but a gathering, a community. People come together for a very distinct, specific purpose. What's that purpose? Jesus is the foundation. They would have come together around Jesus because he's the king. He orders, he organizes. That's what good kings do. And unfortunately, we have a lot of examples of bad kings in our society, in our culture, in our history. And what I mean by that are rulers that have been given power and authority and ability and money and responsibility. And their idea, they are there to use that responsibly in such a way to bring forth a reordering of society so that it flourishes. Yeah, unfortunately, what we've seen for the most part in society at large is that rather than leveraging power to help the weak and the marginalized and the hurting, the poor and the unjust circumstances and the systemic uh, scenarios of brokenness, what they've done is they've leveraged their power and authority and money and resources to better themselves, 
to pad their castles, to build their kingdom and their empires, to build militaristic powerhouses to, to conquer and destroy and crush. And they have to do so by way of the path of violence. In other words, there's constant abuses. Now, some of us might sit back and judge those types of kings that have done that. We're like, how dare they do that? But again, you have to realize that every one of us have some level of power and authority and ability and money and resources that you and I have been given. There is a sphere of influence that every one of you have. It might just be your mom and you've got like five kids nagging at you all day long. Or you might be some guy that works in a cubicle and there's three people around you. And your sphere of influence might be small or might be really big. But how do we use the power and authority and the money and the stuff that we have to better the world? And if we cannot say by these ways, it's very possible we're using that to simply better ourselves at the expense of others. But not so with Jesus. Jesus uses his kingship, his anointing, his credentials to build foundation for a gathering of people to come together for a purpose. So with that, what I want to say is I'm going to just look at three things that will kind of carve out the next three weeks, including today. So today and then two more weeks. Um, so the way I look at this is that Jesus will assemble and gather people around himself. So first of all, we'll take a look at today this idea of gathering together for the purpose of worship and training. We come together, we sing songs, we worship God, and yet we also train. We hear God's word taught, we imbibe God's word. Hopefully we pray the night before or a couple days before even or even that in the morning before just like God Prepare my heart to receive what you want to speak to me. That's, by the way, that's a great way for you to come and get, quote unquote, more out of the sermon, is to just have a heart that's ready. Think of your heart like soil. Think of what's being spoken, whether by me or one of the other pastors here at Calvary Slow, as simply seed deliverers. That's all we do. That's our job, is we cast seed into people's hearts. And for some, it's the idea of, like, I didn't get fed today. Well, the seed may have come upon you. You may have not imbibed the seed, maybe because the soil of your heart's not in the right state. So there's things I think you can do to prepare your heart to receive seed that will begin to grow in your life. Second thing is we also see that these, this assembly uh, grows together in community. We'll talk actually more about this next week, the subject of building community and how we plan as a church community to do that. Thirdly, going together, the idea of going into all the world, living on mission. For some, this actually is going on a literal mission to another country or working for crew or raising support to go be a part of Chi Alpha or some other type of on-campus ministry or church planning, whatever the case is. But for the vast majority of you, I mean, like literally statistically, 97% of you, all right, the rest of you will like go into the rest of this world as a teacher or as a mom or a stay-at-home dad or somebody that is investing your time and energy and talents as, as a waitress or someone that trims flowers or as a barista or someone that pushes a lawnmower for a living. You get the idea or as an architect pushes a pencil, whatever the case is. Your mission field is different than maybe a mission field in the Dominican Republic. Your mission field are the people around you or the little kids that call you mommy or daddy. That's your mission field for this season in your life. The question is, how do we do that well? Because Jesus is building his church. He's up to something. And the question is, are we partnering with him? Are we engaged with what Jesus is already doing? This is not about us trying to be creative and somehow create busy work so that we can look Active. This is about saying, no, 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 God is already doing this. 
So next slide is I want to uh, move on and I want to ask the question in terms of like our part. Uh, what does it look like for us and what is our part? So uh, second thing to think about and to consider our part, which is, I would just put it this way, saying yes to God. Saying yes to God, partnering with him, saying yes to who God is and what God is doing. So I want to think about further this idea. In the book of Jude, I think I have some slides. Oh, there we go. Is that right? There we go. Our part. I was looking at the wrong slide. Um, I want to read a passage out of the book of Jude, chapter uh, 1. There's only one chapter, so don't think of Jude as like a book. Think of it as like a postcard. Uh, verse 18 to 21. It's really short, really small. Um, the writer of Jude simply says this uh, at the end of a long uh, kind of a diatribe to some degree, uh, describing some challenges that were within the local community that he was addressing. And he just simply says this by way of response. In other words, here's, here's what you should be doing in response to the drift that's constantly and consistently happening in the community's life. He says this, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. So I like to think of it this way, that God's grace in this world, in our lives, and what he's up to in this world, that Jesus, the king, is building his church, his assembly, his community of people. Jesus is up to this. He has vested his life, his blood, literally his sweat into this work. And therefore, all of God's grace through Jesus demands a whole life response. It demands us looking at that and saying, God, how should I, how do you want me to partner, to be part of this? How do I say yes? What does my yes to you look like? So that being said, uh, Jude gives us some three things to chew on and think about. Number one, he says this, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. The idea I think that he's basically saying is that there's this, this faith this idea, this concept that's attached to Yahweh who sent his son to suffer and die on our behalf to give us life, that he's saying do everything you can in your life to uh, provoke within your own heart, within the lives of other people, trust, confidence, i.e. faith in your heart. And therefore that will change you into the type of person that is trusting God. In other words, what you believe will come out in, who, in how you act. Let me flip that in reverse. The type of behavior you act according to, your moral behavior, your moral compass, will either betray your true confidence or faith in God or uh, point to the reality of it. Like how we act. You cannot separate our moral actions from what we truly believe. And another way of putting this is that people that are full of faith, we have a word for this in English, faith, full. So be faithful. That's what he's saying. Be faithful. Be full of faith by building yourself up in the most holy faith. All right. Second thing, he says pray in the Holy Spirit. I think really what he's describing here is the relationship of looking to God, having a heart that's open to God, that throughout your whole life, just having this posture that just says, God, how do you want to use me? Who are the people that are in my life right now, no matter how troubling or challenging or happy they make me feel, or frustrating they make me feel. What are you trying to speak to me through this person, through these circumstances, through this challenge, through this hardship, through this sickness, through whatever it is? God, how and where are you wanting to speak to my heart? Do you realize there's like millions of teachers in your life? Millions of them, if you allow them to be teachers. Because 
The people that follow Jesus know that God uses lots of ways to communicate life to us. God's not limited. God uses primarily scripture, but there's all sorts of other ways by which God teaches us. But the problem is oftentimes we have a heart that says no. We have a heart that's not willing. We have a heart that simply says, I only learn these particular ways and I refuse to listen to other ways. And so I think the idea of basically praying in the spirit, having this posture, this heart that just says, Holy Spirit, speak to me, is, is representative of a posture that simply says, I want to be available to God. So I think what he's saying, being first of all faithful to God, full of faith, being available to how the Holy Spirit may want to lead and guide you. And then thirdly, he says, keep yourselves, beloved, in the love of God. And I think the idea that he's basically describing here is keep a heart that is always transformed, always melted by the love of God that's for you. It's not about cold, hard, stone-faced duty and obligation. There are moments in life we have to kind of put our nose to the grind and do things. That's simply being called responsible. But we cannot live a sustained existence with that type of mentality the only th- without becoming hardened people. And what God really, truly wants are people that are softened and, and transformed and malleable and reshapable by the gospel. And the way that I think we do that is we love God. And love of God is always demonstrated by way of love for others. This is what the writer John says later. He says this, something to the effect, he says, you say you love God, who, by the way, it's, you, you cannot see, is invisible, is what John says, uh, and yet you, you don't love your brother, your sister, that you can see, they're your next-door neighbor, they're the one that annoys you all the time because they're posting weird stuff on your Facebook or they're sending you messages or that you know, relative that's always sending really ridiculous uh, threads in your email, you just get annoyed by them? How can you say you love God, you cannot see, and yet you despise your brother? What he's saying is that the love of God plays its way out in our lives both vertically as well as horizontally. And he says, keep yourself in that love. Be careful of drift, because drift leads to a path that's away from God. So what I want to do is I want to finish with some closing thoughts. And with regard to this idea, there's, there's some negative things that we can think about as well in the context here, things that we can resist. I think one of the big ideas that we can resist is resist hard-heartedness. Um, throughout Scripture, there is this constant uh, return back to this warning, like be careful Let's your heart become hardened. Uh, the, the, the reflection is always back to Pharaoh. He's like the quintessential. He's like the template of what it looks like to harden your heart to God. Moses comes to him and says, let God's people go. And Pharaoh's like, nope. And his heart gets hardened. Like it's said that repeatedly in the text. And then later, the children of Israel take on the same mode of Pharaoh where God actually accuses Israel. He's like, you guys are my people. You're the ones that I purchased with the blood of a lamb and brought you out through the Passover and through the Red Sea and I destroyed and crushed your enemies. You guys were nothing in the eyes of the most super-powered militaristic might in the world and I took care of you and now your hearts are becoming hardened. Guys, do you realize, do you realize the propensities in our heart to become hardened? Are you aware of it? Do you see it? Do you sense it? The sense where it just becomes callous. It might start with this like grumbling, this complaining, this sense of like, ah, I don't like this. Or it's 
sermon's too long, or the pastor's a bad haircut, or I don't like the music, it's too noisy, or it's just well, the lights are too low, or they're too bright, or chairs, who likes black chairs, or whatever. It starts with these like subtle forms of complaining, dissatisfaction, and then it takes you on a path where your heart's now this big callus, and it's no longer open. Rather than being engaged right in the midst of where God's at and doing what God is up to and being a part of what God is doing, building his church. We sit on the margins, complaining, frustrated, angry, upset, disengaged, disenchanted. The gospel is always his invitation to examine ourselves in light of the God that loves us and gave himself for us because he is the king that doesn't come and leverage power and strength to crush his enemies, but allows his enemies, to amass what strength they have that has been given to them by his own hands to crush him so that we can go free. That's, that's how this king leverages power and strength. He becomes weak so that we can be made strong. He becomes nothing so that we who are nothing and yet deceptively think we are actually something in our own eyes can actually, by grace, become something. It's this radical way in which Jesus does all this. Finally, I want to finish with uh, just conclusion. So what, the way I want to kind of finish this is I want to think about this. Like the question is like, what are our leaders and the elders of our church community, what are we communicated, or, sorry, committed to with regard to our gatherings? So in short, what we'll be looking at over the next three weeks, again, just to reiterate, number one, the three things that we really want to do that we already see God doing in our church community, God has already been doing this in our church community for a long time, that we want to devote extra energy and attention to these things because, again, this is not us saying, how do we strategize and make things awesome? This is us asking the question, what is God already doing? What has he already been doing? And how do we partner with God and say yes to God in this to be able to do it as best as we can. And those three things is our Sunday gatherings, small groups, and missions. Sending the gospel to all the world. Like those are the three things we want to do really, really well. And this, where it kind of comes back to, like for example, Sunday mornings. How do we do our Sunday morning gatherings well? God's doing something every Sunday. Hundreds of people gather together to worship Jesus, to hear about God, to have their hearts warmed by the gospel, transformed, maybe in some cases thawed out from their death and their slumber to the beauty and the greatness of Jesus. In other words, people meeting Jesus and getting saved. We have kids, hundreds of kids, that are being trained in the gospel every Sunday. It's amazing. There's people here every Sunday that don't even know Jesus. They're not Christians. They haven't made a commitment to God yet. And if that's you, welcome. Glad you're here. Like, our hope is that within time, you would understand the beauty and the greatness of Jesus and come to meet Jesus and be radically transformed by him. Marriages are being healed and transformed because that's what Jesus does. It happens every single Sunday. But we also realize, in order for us to do an event like Sunday morning, meaning hundreds of people coming together, do it well without people being burned out or crushed or ruined or any small group of people carrying the weight of the whole entire thing, uh, we have to be able to be strategic and do this well. So with that being said, it's, again, it asks the question, what are our leaders, it's uh, a bad sentence, I misspelled that, what our leaders, is that right? Or what are our leaders? I, I'm, I'm not good at, at English, is that right? Tara, you're good at English, is that right? No, sorry. Okay, I think, it's, I think it should be, what are, what are our leaders and elders uh, committed to 
uh, with regard to our gatherings. So there we go. I'm going to just restate it. So number th- uh, three things that we'll look at. Number one, uh, we are committed. We're committed to three things. Number one, we're committed to being focused on the gospel, meaning everything we do, everything that gets taught from this pulpit, the aim is always at the end of the day is the whole counsel of God, the gospel, Jesus Christ. Predominantly what we do as a church on Sunday mornings is we teach in a style that we call expositional teaching, which means we'll take books of the Bible and go through them. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we do that. We're Again, we're in the middle of doing that right now in the book of Acts. Uh, probably 95% of all the teaching from day one that I started this church. I don't know if you knew that. I started the church a long time ago in my living room. And I've never stopped. I've never veered from that. I've always done that. 95% of the time. There are occasions, maybe 5% of the time, that we veer from that for just a brief period of time to focus on some themes or topics or ideas that we feel very pressing within the heart of our eldership. So, The way this works is every single week, our elders, we gather together, we pray, we meet Jesus, we talk about stuff that we are dealing with in terms of uh, counseling, shepherding, getting emails from y'all. And sometimes there are occasions as we talk together and we amass enough information or enough questions about certain subjects and there's this constant theme, we ask these questions of the Holy Spirit. God, are you wanting us to teach through another subject or address some topics or themes or concepts or ideas over a particular small period of time? Just like we're doing right now. We're doing three weeks of just this because of the very things I'm saying. So for some of you, you like rhythms. You like the idea of just going through one particular thing. Change is very hard for you. I get it. I get it. Sometimes the older we get, the more difficult change can be. So if we are going to switch from teaching, expositional, verse by verse, to go into a theme or a topic for a couple weeks, some of you that might be like, ah, it's really hard, this is frustrating to me, I want to just do this one particular thing. Um, So you got one or two ways of responding to that. One is hardness of heart, getting upset, frustrating, sitting on the sideline and in the margins, upset. The other is being in the midst of the fray and having a posture that says, whoa, I trust my leaders. They're seeking Jesus. Whatever this theme or this topic series that they're going to be covering, it must be so important because obviously these guys seek Jesus. They pray. They want to be good shepherds to the people in Calvary Slow. So this this right now, this is a great reminder to me that maybe I I need to be praying for my leaders. I need to be praying for those that are going to be teaching. I need to be praying for those that maybe need to be responding and hearing this. And I want to pray for myself so that I would be open to hear what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to me about the gospel in the context of these particular topics and themes. Does that make sense? So again, we will focus on the fact that the gospel will always be central. If for some reason in the future or in the present that that is not the case, I'll fire myself. You're welcome. The next one We want to look at the idea that a safe place of worship. We want our gatherings to be a place where you can come and worship Jesus. It's safe. It's safe to be transparent before God. It's safe to know that your heart, we've said this last week, this place is a place where it's okay to not be okay. You understand that? This is not a place for people that have it all together. All right, so... Again, if you come in here like this place, I got to be perfect. I got to have a certain standard. I got to sing a certain way. No, you don't. You just have to be imperfect. This is a place where it is okay to not be okay. Okay? The point is, is that that creates an environment of grace and safeness that says I can be transparent before God in the context of worship and singing, give my heart before God, and let God begin to transform me. 
That's where true transformation happens. Lastly, we want to train, we want a, we want a better trellis of, uh, of trained and supported servant leads and volunteers. So what this means, think of the word trellis uh, in the context of a field or a vine. Um, so a vine can grow naturally without a trellis, but a vine uh, that does not have a trellis grows on the ground and the fruit is vulnerable to mildew and all those other nasty things. And so I, we, you know, what we want to do is we want to provide a better trellis for the context of our church. So as our church grows, as we add more services, what that does, it literally doubles the amount of work that hap- has to happen on a Sunday morning, which means practically on a level of like someone setting up, someone breaking down, someone making sure that the chairs are all set up, someone making sure that the bathrooms don't run out of toilet paper and that there's coffee. God forbid we ever run out of coffee. It's really important. And all these other things are really part of this whole thing. We have children's ministry at this service right now, which, which was a new addition. Again, meaning an addition to other people. Now, for example, uh, that can be taxing to a community. But again, it's one of those things that we sense God is doing on a Sunday morning. Drawing people to himself, transforming people's lives, opening people's hearts. Uh, and, and this is what God's up to. And we want to partner with that. We want to say, yes, Lord. We don't want to have to say no. So on some very practical levels, in some ways, what we've had, what we've seen in the past, and it's been challenging for us, again, because we want, we're committed to saying we want to do this better, meaning we want to raise up more volunteers. We want to be able to raise up more volunteer leads that oversee some of these things. And the way that as that grows and as that becomes more robust, we are able to better serve each person in this church community. So there have been occasions, for example, if you have uh, a children's ministry, we've had sometimes very large children's ministry classrooms. And we have kind of this, not very large classrooms, but large classes, kids. And there are occasions where we've had to say no to parents because we don't have enough volunteers in there per child. So we have this ratio and we, we abide by these ratio standards. And sometimes if there are more children to parents, there have been occasions we've actually had to say to parents, I'm sorry, you, you, can't, you can't come in. We don't have enough room for you. So that parents now left with this thought of like, do I go home? It's kind of a bummer, or do I go to church with my crazy kid who is not happy with me right now, and now I'm bummed, I'm frazzled, what do I do? Um, And that creates a context of challenge. Some parents who have been part of the children's ministry, they're like, okay, I'm going to go in there and serve. So they've spent all day throughout every day of the week watching their kids, and when they come to church on Sunday, they're like, I want to come worship Jesus. I need to sit in God's presence and listen to the teaching of the word of God and worship Jesus in the context where I can just cast my cares upon him and listen to what he wants to speak to me. And they show up at church and they realize that there's not enough kids in the classroom or leaders, teachers, volunteers in the classroom. They're like, ah, I want to maybe let other parents come. So I'll go in there and I'll serve. And now their heart's like, ah, I want to serve Jesus, but I'm also needing, wanting to worship Jesus. So in the book of Acts, what you have, chapter 6, this scenario takes place. As the church is growing, there's these needs that are happening, that are unfolding. And the situation arises where these uh, Grecian widows uh, were not getting fairly treated. And so the early church leaders, the apostles, the uh, elders, the pastors of the early church, they recognize that something needs to be done about this. We can't ignore this because it's really important. Taking care of Grecian widows is really important because it's part of what the gathering, it's a part of what Jesus is doing. So if we ignore these, this important part of our, our gathering, we're literally ignoring Jesus. We don't want to ignore Jesus. We love Jesus. Because we love Jesus, we love Greek widows. So, and unfortunately, Greek widows aren't getting taken care of, so we've got to respond to Greek widows. So how do we respond to Greek widows? So what the elders do, they, they assess what the needs are. They realize 
man, we need seven people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are full of wisdom, that are faithful, and we're going to go to the church community at large, and we're going to say, listen, we need seven people that are willing to lead in this particular area, and we believe that if those seven uh, can be raised up, we believe that the need will be taken care of, and this is exactly what happened. The need gets taken care of. The elders were able to pray over and appoint these people, and here's what happened. The elders... The pastors that were called the pastor and shepherd that were feeling the bind or the pinch and not able to pastor and shepherd or disciple and pray for people because they were actually having to take care of these Christian widows as well. Now what you have is the church growing. The, the women are being taken care of. The Grecian widows are being taken care of. And the, the apostles are able to actually be pastors. Teach the Bible, disciple people, pray for people. Now, in our church, we've had some challenges and be really quite upfront that we've had a shortage of volunteers, people that are like, I'll do it, I'll jump in. And what has created is a system, to some degree, where the pastors, some of our pastors, have not been able to be pastoring. They've not been able to be praying and uh, effectively teaching and doing the things that they're called to because they're setting up chairs, because they're breaking down chairs, because they're bringing in signs, because of all this. And so what we are doing, what we have uh, uh, assessed within the context of our eldership we want to bring these needs to our church community and just say, this is an important need. Um, we, we, want, we want help. It's a way for you guys to participate and say, I'm in. Whether or not that's, and, and here's a practical way in which you can do that. So number one, um, you guys all have a little flyer in your seat. If you would like to volunteer, it's awesome. That'd be really great. I would suggest if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, let's say two years or above, and you've never really gotten involved, my, my, my encouragement to you would be to say yes to Jesus. Say yes to what God's doing. Say yes, I want, I want in. I want to be part of what you're up to, God. Um, and you can volunteer. There's lots of different ways. That flyer thing has all sorts of ways. Um, we're always looking for like graphic designers and musicians and people like that. So that's, that's a way for you can practically do that. Um, lastly, our elders have actually gotten together and we've realized that one of the ways in which we can make Sunday morning as best as it can be is there is a need right now for six main spots, six main spots. Uh, we're calling these Sunday servant leads. These are people, for example, that are leads over setup or leads over breakdown. And on this little uh, form, you can actually uh, just go to calvaryslow.com forward slash Sunday servants. I think the slides are, are the things right there. Okay, calvaryslow.com forward slash Sunday servants. And that will basically describe to you. So what we're asking you guys to consider doing, it's, it's available for either men or women. Um, and we are asking you guys to help us, to help us. We're asking you, you have eyes, you have ears, uh, you know people that maybe we don't know. Um, and so we're coming to the church community at large and we're saying, help us. So one thing I want to be clear on, um, people that you nominate or write down as, as a name on here, um, they're, they're not like necessarily automatically like in charge of that thing right now. What will happen is the elders, we will take a look at these names, we'll pray over them, we'll ask God, how, are you, how is he leading, how is he moving? The elders then will reach out to these people and then in pray and ask them to pray about being a part of this. We'll do, provide the training. In this list, it basically breaks down the six areas. It's very descriptive. It tells you how many hours it involves. Most of them are like two and a half hours a week. So again, if you're somebody that's like, I like setting up chairs and I'm happy with helping bring people together and I have an extra two hours that I'm willing to like give to Jesus, you could be awesome. You literally can actually not only help Sunday mornings be even greater, but also allow pastors to do pastor stuff. And this church will continue to bless, be blessed and find God's favor in a profound group of ways. So there you go. That's the last thing I want to say and I'm done 
is this. So the question is, why are we actually really eager to invite you into participation? Like, why? Okay, here's the last question I want to ask. Um, if God doesn't really need us, right? God's all-powerful. God can do anything he wants. And technically, uh, what I mean, God doesn't need us. Like, he doesn't need Calvary Slow. He doesn't need the local community in San Luis Obispo that meets South Aguera. He doesn't need this group because there's a lot of great churches in San Luis that are doing great stuff. We bless them. We love them. God doesn't need us. And so what can happen is if we're just like, okay, whatever, just throw up our hands and we'll just continue coming to church on Sunday and just doing the thing that we do, um, kind of playing the indifferent card. At some point, uh, we'll just we'll be like a, a big club. And at some point, we'll get bored of a big club because that's what happens when you get bored of big clubs. You're just like, oh, man, why should I do this? And, and, and this whole thing just kind of fizzles away. And unfortunately, that's what happens in hundreds of churches every single week in America. You know, you know that, right? Like hundreds of churches every week are closing their doors. Because somewhere along the line, drift happened. The gospel stopped being central. Worship stopped being a place that's safe to be okay, even though you're not okay. And somewhere along the line, uh, people just became indifferent. And just were saying, rather than saying yes and engaging with the heart of God and what God is up to and doing in this world, it's somewhere just drifted. Now, so the question is, uh, God will do his work with or without us. So why would we want to participate? Three reasons I'm done. Number one, obedience. Obedience. Another way I think of obedience is, is agreement with God. Obedience is just simply saying, God, I want, to, I want to live in agreement with you. Who you are, your character, what you say, how you've ordered the world, how you've ordered my life, how you've ordered the church. I want to say yes to you, God. I don't want to be staying, uh, standing in a position or a posture of saying no to you. Agreement with God. That's what obedience is. Number two, blessing. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Number three, transformation. And, and I, I see this almost as an equation that obedience leads to blessing, leads to transformation. That's how God changes us. If, if you're wondering, like, the, what's the trick to the Christian life? Want to know? It begins, it begins Front door, the whole thing, is saying, yes, Lord. That's where it begins. It's like no trick. It just begins by saying, yes, God. And then that leads to obedience, which leads to, wow, blessing, which leads to, wow, I'm being changed. God's transforming me, my desires, my hopes. I'm being changed from one degree of glory to another. That's what the gospel does. It's always this invitation to say yes to God. So, I'm done. Why don't we all stand? We'll sing a song and wrap it up. Is that okay? I went, I went late, sorry. I went really late. <laughs> sorry. I have another meeting right after this at one. Is anyone going to go to that? Anyone? You're a biblical literacy? Cool, all right. Look forward to seeing you. Um, let, me, let me pray and we'll, just, we'll, we'll close with a song. And uh, communion, a way of reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. If you need prayer for anything, um, I'll be in the front. Love to pray with you. Um, if anyone else would like to join me to pray, and you guys are more than welcome to come on up and just pray for folks that want to pray. So, Jesus, thank you. And right now, in this moment, we want to individually and collectively say, yes, Lord. Yes to what you're doing. Yes to partnering with you. Yes to what you're up to in this world in this community, in this church.